Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. Y'all, I am super pumped to be sharing this conversation you're about to hear. Not only are we going to be talking about Defending Your Life, which is just one of the, the great comedies from the 1990s, but our guest, our guest is a rock star. He's an author. He's a screenwriter, a man of many hats, Bill Robertson. I'm really pumped because at the time of recording, the the SAG strike, you know, the the, the Screen Actors Guild strike just began. Of course, the writer strike has been ongoing, but here we are at the time of publishing. These strikes are still going, and uh, Bill raises some really interesting points. It's a fun conversation under. A very very serious circumstance but of course we're going to parlay it with uh with defending your life so a little hodgepodge of some great stuff that we're about to discuss so without further ado let's just dive right on in well hello bill How, how's it going i'm doing well how are you i'm also doing well i'm really looking forward to this conversation i know we we first connected a couple months ago when you had the wonderful idea to talk about defending your life uh which is a movie that you said that that you really enjoy. And I was introduced to it like back, well, back in the nineties, I would have seen this like on HBO or Showtime or whatever it was on. And uh, it was my introduction to Albert Brooks, but before we get really into the movie and I want to know like your origin story with this, but if you wouldn't mind, Bill, if you would just kind of briefly introduce you uh, to our listeners, who you are, what it is that you do. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Sure. No, it sounds good. Um, oh God, what do I do? I do a lot lately. Um, (laughs) what are you doing right now? (laughs) What am I doing right now? What I'm doing right now is, um, I made a film over COVID called Paradise, a town of sinners and saints. That's based on a stage musical that ran here in Los Angeles for quite a while. And then it went to Austin, Texas. And prior to that, Broadway was trying to get their hand involved in it. And then um, we were going to take it to off-Broadway just before COVID kicked in. And a friend of mine, Brad Wilson, who used to run Robert Duvall's company for many years, he had seen the play and he said, Bill, how would you like to turn it into a low-budget feature film? And I went, what? And it just kind of went from there. I raised the capital. We ended up casting um, a a couple finalists from The Voice. Uh, Mary Sarah is one of them. Mary Sarah has a huge following. And then a bunch of character actors. There are 21 original songs. And then we picked up distribution through uh, Artist View Entertainment. And now we're waiting for it to sell so that there'll be a release date where then everyone can see it. Um, So I've been doing that. And then... I wrote a book um, called Uncle Bill's Animal Tales, Life Lessons for Adults, and it's on (laughs) Amazon. And it was about all of my experiences with animals over the years and what I've learned from them. So it's not a children's book by any stretch. And then I'm finishing up my second book, uh, Uncle Bill Can't Drink Anymore, Thank God, as I'm 26 years clean and sober. So I've been I've been writing a lot. Um, my agent, you know, we got a writer's strike. We have today a actor's strike. So um, not much is going to happen regarding screenplays and other things. Um, I sold a couple scripts to Lifetime uh, before COVID, and one was turned into a movie. Um, the worst title ever, but we didn't title it. Originally, it was called... You can never go home again. And A&E, who owned Lifetime, um, loved it. They were like, oh, we love that title. Never go home again. And I got the shooting script, and it's called Stalked by My Ex. (laughs) So I guess it turns out that they have a Stalked by series, like Stalked by My Mother, Stalked by My Doctor, My my Accountant, you know, whatever. And uh, it's so weird. I can write them, but I can't, you know, it was... It was just strange. So we've sold a couple to them. Um, and uh, and that's really what I'm doing. I'm just working on a lot of writing projects right mm-hmm. now and hoping that the writer's strike ends sooner than later. I think it's going to go on for a little bit. Um, 
because there's a lot of issues with AI and uh, SAG and um, the WGA um, are really, they want regulations put in. They want certain stipulations put in that they're not, you know, put out of business due to AI. Because mm-hmm. they are claiming it's going to affect writers. Now, probably not the, if I'm writing an autobiography, no. But um, I've already been getting hit left and right by companies that specialize in AI, AI wanted me to write my next book through it. I'm going to put on my second book. This was written by a human being because it's going to be the wave. It's it's a good cause. And the strike, I think, is extremely, extremely important. This is the first conversation uh, that I've had on this subject. And it's really, really topical because this just went down today. And yeah. And um, so what is kind of your are you're in California? Are you in L.A.? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. I. I'm from Boston originally, but I've been out here uh, over 20 years. I moved out here two weeks before 9-11. So um, on that flight, Mm. it's still weird to think about. But my my manager at the time, um, which was uh, Mike Ovitz's company, um, he was like, Bill, you have to be out here. And now, I mean, it is good to spend some time in L.A. if you're going to. I've met so many people as a friend of mine said, Bill, you got to be out here because you're going to meet people at the supermarket, you know, and his whole advice was just make friends. And I've gotten a chance to work with some pretty, pretty cool people. I've met a lot of people. Um, I just feel like it opens up different doors. I think the same thing in New York or in Atlanta, you know, Um, Chicago, maybe not as much unless, unless it's theater, but you know, who knows? It's it's but I, I've been out here a while and uh, a lot of my friends are actors. And I mean, the film we made, my producer at the time, Brad, he didn't want us to go union because he just had a feeling this stuff was going to happen. And and also, you know, dealing with SAG, there's a lot of um, a lot of hoops you have to jump through, especially being an independent film. And, uh, you know, they were actually pretty good. And they do take care of their actors. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a union. So, um, but I think you might see more productions going up with non-union. The only problem is you really have to look hard to find good actors, right? Because most of the good actors are SAG or their equity if they're doing theater mm-hmm. um, for a reason, because they're good. And I'm so glad we did with our cast because our cast was great. Now, how long, uh, obviously you've been out in, in LA for 20 years or so, like, how did you, have you always like growing up, were you always big into writing or is this something that you discovered in adulthood? Your, you, uh, what is your kind of your writing background? Yeah, no, I wrote my first play in the third grade and, um, and then, uh, I did some stuff in high school and college. And when I got out, I got into corporate America and I, I worked two careers for a long time. The way I used to look at it before I moved out here was my my A job was writing. My B job was corporate recruiting. I was a corporate recruiter, but my B job supports my A job till my A job supports me. So I would honor both. Um, and what I did originally is I wanted to get back into doing some theater. So I volunteered as the bartender. This is before I got sober as a bartender for the public theater in Boston, which was right on the Charles River. It was an outdoor theater. And my goal was to become the assistant director the next year. And I managed to make that happen because I figured as a bartender, I'm going to meet everybody. Right. And I met the artistic director who liked to have a few drinks. And um, by the end of the season, it was like, hey, Bill, how would you like to be the artistic director? I mean, how would you like to be the my my assistant director next year. So I did that. And then uh, it I ended up um, starting a sketch comedy show in Boston that we ran in Boston and in New York at the duplex. It was called Heavily Medicated Fairy Tales. It was like <laughs> Monty Python meets Fractured Fairy Tales. So it was it was very bizarre. We um we played a lot of college gigs. We played several clubs and uh, the duplex in the village, which is very famous, and Catch a Rising Star, we were regulars there. And we, the closest we got was ABC came to see us in New York 
like the limo pulls up, everybody gets out. And um, it was our Christmas show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Entree, Good Eaten. So it was a musical <laughs> about Rudolph getting hit by a wagoneer on Christmas Eve. Like we had songs like um, The Little Drumstick Boy, you know, things like that. So it was, and then we started doing a lot of short films and I directed five short films. And then I started writing for National Lampoon Magazine. And then I wrote for um, a kid's show on PBS. I wrote for a talking crayon. And, and then I got sober. And after that, I started writing screenplays and I optioned a bunch. And that's when we picked up a manager who said, Bill, you need to be in LA. And, and I came out here, I was the head of development for a little while, for a couple of years for Mark Harris's company. Mark, prior to starting the company I worked for, had produced Crash yeah, and Gods and Monsters. And Mark passed away over COVID, but he, um, he was, when he was an agent, he was the guy who first syndicated on an international basis. It was Baywatch. He was responsible for the syndication of Baywatch and he cut those deals. It was great because he had wonderful stories about Hollywood. Yeah. And and I met a lot of great people through him. So it's really, you know, I worked that corporate gig on the side because I worked from home doing it for since 97. And then I got laid off in 2020 and was like, you know what? I've been working two careers for a long time. I'm just going to write full time. And then that's when the book came out. That's when we, you know, we actually produced the film um, and got distribution during COVID. So our, our distributor just got back from Cannes and it got a good reception over there. So now he's got screeners out the door for your listeners, just so they know. And it's so funny because so many people have said to me like a month after we made the movie, where can I see it? Are you like, are you kidding me? It takes 18 average. 18 to 24 months from the time you finish a film is when it's actually released. That's the average. So it can take longer. It can be a little bit less. But even going to festivals, I've got friends with names, you know, named stars in the films that didn't get distribution um, yet. And we're at 14 months. So with both strikes, I hate to say this, but I think it makes our film even more valuable because they're, they're going to need to fill the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I got my fingers crossed that before the end of July, I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's sold to like Hulu or Roku or one of those with, with also a theatrical. So, you know, he's, he, I love our, 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 um, our distributors. They're getting it out all over the place, but you know, you'll see what happens. Who knows? Yeah, so it's well, all a crapshoot. The whole thing yep. is a crapshoot. Absolutely. Well, good luck to you either way. I mean, this, you know, like knock on wood, you know, like just this something, something good comes out of this. And that, that's exciting for somebody that that's obviously had things optioned and and screenplays that have been sold. Can you maybe like tell the listeners what that kind of looks like as far <laughs> as I mean, because there obviously there's no like, you know, one shoe fits uh, for everything. But like in your experience, what what does that kind of look like for the listeners? And and then we'll transition into talking about the film. But this is obviously uh, really just fascinating stuff. And for somebody that's also uh, really big into writing, I, I just anytime I have a writer on here, I just want to just talk about writing more than movies. But uh, let's uh, we'll we'll try to stay somewhat focused here. Sure. No, when I first moved to L.A., um, I picked up a job as a reader. So I read and did coverage on about 150 scripts out of those 150 five to 10 were even palatable by reading a lot of bad scripts. I learned how to write better scripts and it really is about becoming a student of your craft and remembering there's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. That's really what it comes down to. And you have to be collaborative. When we had the Broadway people come in, we did a 10 day workshop with them on on my um, theater piece and the musical director. I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a big Tony winner. And um, he went to my producers and said, what's up with Bill and Tom? Tom's my writing partner. 
and and Cliff, who was our composer, and they were like, what are you talking about? They're really easy to work with. And they were like, yeah, they are. What's your point? And he goes, I'm not used to that. Do they have another angle or something that they're trying to do? Because they're very collaborative. And I, I was like, what? Okay. But in running sketch comedy for a long time, you had to be collaborative because it was a group effort. So if one is planning on becoming a screenwriter, there are a lot of different ways to do that. The first thing I recommend is, you, you know, you check your ego at the door because you're going to get notes. And if anyone's giving you notes, you don't try and talk them out of the note. You just listen and nod your head and go, thank you. And you write down the notes. And if you have, you know, you get notes from five to seven different people and it's all the same note, you have a rewrite to do, you know. But what I what I recommend is and I'm, I'm old school. So I took a I took a, um, a seminar at Harvard by Robert McKee, who wrote the book Story. Story. And it was a three day seminar from nine in the morning till 10 at night with two 15 minute breaks. So it was like taking a full semester. Um, I then devoured books like Screenplay by Sid Field. And um, um, what's the other one? It has a cat in the name. Save the it cat. Was, thank you. Save the cat. But it's really becoming a student of the craft. And then now with Google, you can go online and read screenplays. My manager at the time would send me screenplays that sold. Like I got to read one of the original copies of Kill Bill by Quentin Tarantino with his notes was fantastic, you know, but it was simple. He kept it simple, you know, and it is remembering, you know, film you want to show, not tell, you know, and as much as possible. So one thing I do now is I write the screenplay with no dialogue. I write the whole thing of um, I set up where it is. I write the action. I go through the whole thing. I have it mapped out. So it's really a director's screenplay. Mm -hmm. And then I can go back in and work out the characters, move scenes around, whatever. I love editing. So I'll move things around. Um, when I send a screenplay that I've written and have hopefully done anywhere from seven to 10 drafts before I even show it to somebody, I then give it to them with a list of questions. And they're questions that they can't answer yes or no to. Because if you give it to people that love you, they're going to be like, you know, the worst is, oh, it's cute. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. That doesn't help you. So I would ask like questions. Who, were, who was your favorite character and why? Who was your least favorite character and why? So I keep it simple. You know, what part of the story grabbed you emotionally and why? So you get them and then it makes it easy for the reader too. If you give them like five or six questions, maybe seven at the most and send them the screenplay. Cause then they'll know how to respond. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of gather up the information and see what fits. And also you have to follow your gut. You know, I've written so many screenplays over the years and there's some, I had to finally just kind of let go of. And be like, you know what? This is not the time for it. Doesn't mean I can't come back to it. Like over COVID, I rewrote five or six scripts over COVID and made the movie and wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, things happen when they're supposed to happen. Um, another way, which I have not chose to do, um, I have not chosen to do is, is enter your screenplay in festivals. But at the end of the day, God, I know people are going to hate to hear this, but it really, for me, it's been my experience. It's all in who you know. Right. It's about making connections. It's about meeting people. And that's why being in L.A. or New York or Atlanta, you're going to meet people. Um, and and even if you're volunteering with different you know, theater groups or different places, like here in L.A., when we put up this musical the first time at this little theater in Santa Monica, they made a point of bringing in casting directors, like big ones. And there were a lot of celebrities that would go to this little theater because it was away from everything. And they had a giant parking lot in LA. Having a giant parking lot is key, you know, because trying to find parking. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I'm serious. I met so many people and and wrote a screenplay based on somebody that I met. They um they did some work for me and I did some work for them. And um Mark Harris, I met through my spiritual center. You know, the Agape International Spiritual Center where I go. And it's a lot of artists go there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've met Stevie Wonder and all these other people. And so it's finding those different groups where people might be or reaching out to people and and not being afraid to just make friends. Right. Just make friends because it can be awkward to ask someone, you know, would you read my screenplay? I won't read anyone's screenplay anymore. I just won't Mm -hmm. because I've been asked so many times and I read them and it's it's just a nightmare, you know, but that's me. Mm -hmm. Early on, I read everybody's screenplay. And then I would give notes and sometimes I was trying, I'm always trying to be helpful, but sometimes people don't take it that way. Right. But it was funny. I, 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 I kind of offended a friend of mine. I hated his screenplay. There was nothing about it. I liked it. He was like, Bill, there isn't anything you like. And I'm like, I'm sorry, there isn't. Well, he went on to get his master's degree in screenwriting from UCLA and he has sold a couple scripts. He had like two movies made. And I talked to him not too long ago. And he was like, Bill, you pissed me off so much. I was determined to. And and I really didn't mean to, you know, but I couldn't find anything about it. It was. Mm-hmm. And I went back and read it again. And I wanted to be honest with him. So I wasn't mean at all. I was just like, no, I don't understand this. Why is this, this and this? And then that's when he asked me, is there anything you liked about it? And I said, I got to be honest. It was hard to get over certain things. So when you do give it out to people, you do want to give it out to people that are going to give you basically tough love. Right. Don't give it to somebody who's just, like I said, going to say, oh, good effort. No, that doesn't help you. Right. You know, so those are some other ways. um, If if they're talking about film, if you're talking about TV, you got to be in L.A. or New York or Atlanta, and you're usually coming in as a um, a writer's assistant or something like that. And and those people do move up, you know? Um, but like I, you know, like William Goldman, the old screenwriter mm-hmm. said, no one in Hollywood knows anything. So follow your gut and just keep moving in that direction. And, and then the last thing I'll say is, <sighs> if you have the chutzpah, Make your own. Making your own is key. Whether I I just spoke to a producer friend of mine yesterday who lives in Florida, but he has a good background from L.A. And there's a woman who's going to direct his next feature. He just raised a million dollars. It's a horror film. And she has no feature experience, but she has directed like 20 short films. Mm -hmm. And she also wrote the script. And that can be another way in is write a short film, learn how to produce it. And there's so many things between YouTube and Google and books. Teach yourself how to do it and then take chances. I mean, I didn't raise capital before and I raised, well, it's not true. I have for the stage show, but this, I raised enough capital. I can't tell you the budget because uh, we're not allowed to talk about it, but I had um, 10 investors and just started, learned how to pitch. And um, in regards to pitching the film compared to me pitching script, kind of did both, but it was, so anything's possible, but my best advice I think is learn your craft and then make your own project. And then you have a calling card. Awesome. Thank you very much, Bill, for for sharing that. You know, obviously this isn't what the, the episode is about per se, but this is uh, just a great opportunity for listeners to hear somebody that's out there working to hear it from your perspective. So thank you very much for sharing that. My pleasure. Now then, let's get into the the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Let's talk defending your life. Defending your life. Albert Brooks, Meryl Streep, Rip Torn, Lee Grant, and Buck Henry. And Shirley McLean. <laughs> Shirley McLean. Oh, Shirley McLean. That's right. That's yep. right. Yeah. <laughs> And the guy who played Meryl Streep's lawyer lives in my writing partner's apartment building. Oh, really? That's <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, he doesn't act anymore. But 
That's really funny. Now, typically when I have people on the show, the I like to have this. It's a little bit more like a conversational discussion, kind of like, why did you want to talk about this movie? What stands out about this film? Now, this is a movie at this point, what, 30 yeah, just over 30 years old. Um, it wasn't a I, I, I was it wasn't by any means like a box office hit. I mean, it was a well-respected film. Uh, it was on HBO for for years and years. But for the listeners that maybe haven't heard of this film or aren't familiar with this movie, do you feel comfortable kind of giving us like a little little synopsis uh, kind of run through or do you want me to tackle it? But uh, I mean, this was your film, so I thought I'd give you the opportunity to kind of discuss what it is about this movie that you like. So what, I can, what can totally, you tell me defending your yeah, life? Oh, I can totally pitch it because <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it probably. Oh, at least 10 times, mm -hmm. at least, you know, um, defending your life. Albert Brooks, who also started doing short films on Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. Um, it's about when you die, you go to Judgment City first. And in Judgment City, they pick a certain amount of days from your life to um, look at those days in your life. And if you have walked through fear, then you move on in the universe. And if you haven't walked through fear, then you, you are reincarnated and you come back again in order to deal with those at a later date in another body. The other thing about Judgment City is you can eat all the food you want and never gain a pound. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, I think, and I, I'm not going to give it away because I want people to watch this movie. The ending I think is one of the most powerful endings in film I have ever seen. And I cry every single time I see it, not a sad cry, but a happy cry. Mm -hmm. See, when I first saw it, I saw it in, um, 1992 and my partner, at the time had just died of AIDS. And I saw it within the week after he died. And I cried for easily a half an hour straight. I remember calling my sister, telling her I can't stop crying after seeing this movie. And it was also just because of what I had just gone through. I mean, it was horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And I had no idea what this movie was about, but I loved Albert Brooks and I loved Meryl Streep and Rip Torn and Lee Grant and Buck Henry. And uh, I didn't know Shirley was in it at the time. Um, and it hit me so profoundly. So over the years, I've had you know friends that have lost loved ones, whether they were partners or parents or siblings, or whatever. And I've recommended once they're ready, I will recommend the movie because it gave me a whole different sense of why I'm here. And I have to tell you, it helped me when I got clean and sober in 97, I was asked to speak at an AA meeting. Um, actually, I'm not supposed to say that in radio film at a 12 step meeting. How about that? Um, and I had like six months and there's a line in the movie that Lee Grant says to Albert Brooks, he had dealt with, um, he was speaking, he had to do a public speaking mm -hmm. at this big yep. convention and he froze. And, and then like a fire alarm went off and they had to clear out the place. And he was trying to defend that day by saying, you know, this other thing happened. I would have spoken. And she said, but you never went back and walked through that fear. So you never got that part of your brain. So here I am, six months clean and sober. I'm living in Boston. I'm walking to this meeting and I'm nervous as hell. And I thought, oh, my God. And I just remembered that scene and went, I want that part of my brain. I'm going to walk through this fear. And, and the movie's very Buddhist. It really mm -hmm. is. It's very Buddhist oriented. And, and I remember the way the universe showed up. I went to go get my hair cut. And I had like six months of sobriety and the woman who cut my hair, who I've never met before, shared with me that she had seven days of sobriety. And I was able to share the movie with her. and it eased my mind to then go in and walk through that fear so that I would have that part of my brain. It's a powerful film that you're right. It didn't do great at the box office, but I think it's done wonderfully. Probably HBO and the others. I yeah. actually 
DVD'd it. It's still on my television right now. I'm probably going to watch <laughs> it tonight. I think I'm going to watch it tonight. But it's funny. It's so funny. Um, yep. Oh, my God. And it, I think it's Meryl Streep's most likable character that she's ever done. It's a different Meryl. It's a completely different Meryl Streep performance. Totally. It's such a it's such a, a playful Meryl. Yeah, it's a very playful Meryl, and and just a great example. Um, and how, once again, you know, Albert Brooks's character is broken, emotionally broken, and afraid of a lot of things, of a lot of things, and how he processes that fear and walks through it in this film. It's a great film about walking through fear and understanding every time we walk through fear on the other side of fear is more self-love. Mm -hmm. And it really is, you know, face everything and recover um, or false evidence appearing real, you know, the definitions of fear. And that's really what that film is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you you went over every, um, everything, but just a couple of things that you had mentioned. Obviously, we are in Judgment City, this place between um, living and the the next uh, step in the universe. You talk about like opening up that yeah. piece of your brain. One of the, the recurring gags is there's like this in this new world Judgment City. It, it's these essentially you're being judged and you got your own lawyers that are kind of like this weird form of. Um, very helpful, very efficient um, lawyers, but also very, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say judgmental, but there's an element of that just in the the way that they refer to how little of our brains uh, the living use. And so like uh, Rip Torn talks about that he uses like 48% of his brain and um, and then asked Albert Brooks, if he knows how much he uses, and it's only 3%. So yeah. the whole idea <laughs> of the living really not using much of their brain. But Albert Brooks's character, uh, I believe Daniel, um, he dies in a car accident on his birthday. And then he's in this, like I said, this kind of like purgatory. And it, it's just so it's such a fun, uh, like high concept <laughs> uh, story. But to your point, it's a movie about fear and it's a movie about judgment and self-love and and that journey. And, yeah, there's a a, a love story uh, that's that's built into it. And to your also something that you mentioned, one of the most satisfying final acts of a of a of a comedy. I'm not going to even call this a rom-com because it's not a rom-com. No, it's not. There no. is relationships uh, that are, you know, in the Meryl Streep role, which. I don't know if uh, if what I heard is accurate about kind of like the backstory that how Meryl Streep even came to be in this movie, but oh, the, I don't know. So what I read, and I I, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, he was friends with Carrie Fisher, and uh, mm. Carrie Fisher had just recently done Postcards from the Edge, right? You know, she oh, which, I love it, which uh, Meryl Streep starred in. And Albert Brooks and uh, Carrie Fisher were were talking and Meryl Streep had just randomly said, hey, well, you know, you're working on this new project. Can I be in it? And he thought that was just crazy because of it's, it's Meryl Streep and she's not approachable. You know, you can't just say, hey, Meryl, you want to be in this kind of low budget, high concept uh, story about life and fear and and being and kind of like this this purgatory. But she was all on board and then essentially created this character for her and i think it's i think it's awesome and it just I, whether or not that is true i don't know but that's what i've read and i, I want to believe it because it, it just also um kind of speaks to another element of just the universe of just you know this this uh the way that things can 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 happen and work out so perfectly and and uh yeah and you also mentioned like that element of that spiritualism talking about uh, Buddhism. And obviously there's a wonderful, wonderful scene where they're, they're uh, in the reincarnation kind of element, see who they were in their past lives and the past lives pavilion, Yeah, past lives <laughs> pavilion. Exactly. And it, just one of my favorite lines was whether they're, they're looking at their past lives and um, he's asked who, you know, they ask him who, who he was and he's being chased and he's like lunch. <laughs> and yep. uh, it's just, it, it, it's good. The movie just makes me smile. Just when I think about 
about the film itself and insane cast, as you had already yep. spoken to Albert Brooks, Meryl Streep, Rip Torn, who yep. I guess, you know what, I might even transition. I had some questions that I thought about, right? Um, if you were, if this was something that exists and we'll, you know, maybe we'll get into spiritual uh, spirituality uh, for yourself, but if this was your world, which, I don't know, which, uh, which film lawyer would you want defending you in your own personal uh, oh. judgment city? I don't know. Gregory Peck from from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, exactly. What is that? Atticus Finch? Is that it? Uh, yes, Atticus Finch. <laughs> I'd want him and maybe Al Pacino. From, oh, yeah. Uh, this whole court's out of order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Son maybe of a woman. someone like yeah. that. Could be, oh, Paul Newman from The Verdict. What, once he got sober. <laughs> right. Oh my God, I forgot about the verdict. I, you know, because I film. was, I was thinking about this in preparation for this conversation. Like, who would I want? And you know, I thought about, I thought about Gregory Pack. I thought about like Tom Cruise and, uh, you know, he he got uh, Jack Nicholson on the stand to you know talk about the Code Red, right? You know, uh, so I'm like, well, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe there. But then I'm like, no, I think for my own sensibilities, I think I want Vincent Laguardia Gambini. I want, you know, I want my cousin Vinny. That's who I. Uh, that's, that's 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 my funny. guy. That's yeah. funny. That's um, a good one. But uh, to kind of like backtrack, why did you want to talk about? The, I mean, apart from the fact that it's brilliant, why did you want to talk about this movie? There's only a couple of films. Whenever anybody asks me what are my favorite films, there's usually two I mention. One is Defending Your Life, and the other one is Torch Song Trilogy. And have you ever seen Torch Song Trilogy? I have not. I have not. All right. Um, Torch Song Trilogy was written by Harvey Firestein. It was based on a on a stage play, on a Broadway play that ran for a long time. And it actually made Estelle Getty's career, who played Sophia on The Golden yep. Girls. She played his mother on the stage play. In the movie, Anne Bancroft plays his mother. And Matthew Broderick is in it. Brian Kerwin. Um, and that's all I can remember right now. It was very controversial when it came out in the 80s because... Harvey Firestein plays a drag queen and uh, Matthew Broderick plays his lover. Mm. And in the 80s, Ferris Bueller, all these yeah. other things, and they kiss and it was a big deal. And they cut away from it, just like they did with Will Smith in right. and, Six, um, Degrees, Six of Degrees of Separation. Of separation. Mm -hmm. Another movie I absolutely love, but he got a lot of a lot of shit for that. of yep. Pulling away from kissing uh I want to say Anthony Michael Hall or somebody like that. It was a weird person. But anyway, um, with um, Torch Song Trilogy, it's it's a beautiful, I highly recommend it. It's a beautifully made film. And there's, there's one line, I'm going to paraphrase it, but um, and I don't want to give anything away since you haven't seen it, but he talks about Matthew Broderick's character loving him so much that he looked for his imperfections to love more. Mm. He looked for the things that were wrong with Harvey Feierstein and Harvey's mind that he loved him for his faults, basically, is what he said. Right. He loved me for my faults. I mean, that's just a line that's so fantastic. Yeah. And in the play, Matthew Broderick played his son because he adopts a kid. So he plays that in the play. And then in the movie, he became his partner. Mm -hmm. by the time they made it you know so it's 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 an important film especially now with what's going on in the gay community and in different states there's over right. 500 bills um amongst the states that are anti-gay and anti-trans 500 right now so watch the gay community is going to um we've already we already know how to fight back because we did it during the aids epidemic and it's going to happen again. We're going to vote people out. We're a huge voting block that yeah. they're not thinking about. So, it's such a weird time that we're that we're in. We're just at this like crosshairs of just a world. Pardon my French. Just a world of shit that's just going on. And you know whether like just I mean th that's an entirely different conversation. I, you know we don't necessarily have to go down that road. But yeah, where 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 things are right now is crazy. But. Uh, to the the film that you're referring to, just so I know, I pride myself on knowing most actors and 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 their works. But just 
for the listeners and for my just for clarification, Harvey Firestein, that is Harvey Firestein, right? Like the yes. The, no, Harvey the, Firestein wrote Torch Song trilogy. He wrote um um La Caja Fall, the musical on Broadway. He wrote, if you look him up, he's written several plays that he's more of a theater guy, but he also wrote the the screenplay. I want to say he wrote the screenplay for Hairspray. Um, I'm not positive on that. He might have for the musical version of it. He's in Hairspray. Mm -hmm. He plays the mother. Yeah. On on, on the stage production of it. In the movie, it was John Travolta. Yeah, and this is like my my ignorance showing just because I I I know him from his 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 acting voice. I, I honestly I didn't know he's a playwright that, that he was a playwright. Didn't didn't I've never looked up his bio. I just know that everything I've ever seen him in acting, he's awesome. So I mean I mean yeah. stand a reason that his 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 written work would be fantastic too. But this is another reason why I have the show is just uh, to. I, I know what I enjoy. I bring people on because I want to know what they're what they're intrigued and what they're fascinated, what their passions are. So, uh, I mean, Hardy Firestein is, you know, I don't know, 70, 70 plus. And I've known his work for, well, I guess my introduction would have been like Mrs. Doubtfire. But uh, but, you know, oh, like this is somebody yeah. that I've I've been familiar with for the pa- better part of 30 or so years. But I'm only now just discovering that, you know, he's a playwright. So this this is just fun for me just so I can uh, become you know, educated on his, on his, on his, in his written works. He's also, he's an important person to know because he's authentic to who he mm-hmm. is. And he, and he had no problem when he won the Tony award, um, talking about his partner during the seventies and eighties, when a lot of people were still closeted. Um, I mean, I put him on the level of, um, Tony Kushner, Mm. You know who Tony Kushner oh, yeah. is? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, if anyone hasn't seen Angels in America on HBO based on the play with Al Pacino playing Roy Cohn. Oh, my. And Meryl Streep playing yep. like four or five different characters. It was fabulous. I saw the play years ago. It was it was intense. I had to go and sit in the park after I saw that to just like decom- decompress. Yeah, I was going to say decompose, but that's not correct. <laughs> a little um, different. A little, a little different. different. And then the other one who just passed away, uh, Terrence McNally. Terrence McNally, another very strong um, gay playwright who also wrote for film. And he he died of COVID. And I saw him at a seminar here in L.A. And it was a whole thing about um, like the most of the people on the panel were were um, were writers here in Hollywood for like modern family and things like that. And he was very bold where he just goes, you know, only women and gay men can write good female characters. And Alfred Molina, the actor was in the audience and he started cracking up and, but that's a bold statement, you know, Mm -hmm. when you think about it, but he was very, you know, matter of fact about it. And most of the people on the panel were either women or gay men. So it was kind of funny, (laughs) but but yeah, Harvey Firestein, he's just a very talented writer. He's a great comedian, his comic mm-hmm. writing. Um, and Albert Brooks, I mean, I have Lost in America was my first Albert yeah. Brooks film that I fell in love with. Um, Mother with Debbie Reynolds was okay. Um, I liked it because I like Albert Brooks, but it wasn't as strong, I didn't feel. And then he wrote one about um the muse. Yep. Did you ever see the muse? Yep. I liked the muse. I wish I enjoyed even... it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. You just, you had brought up mother and I just went back to a scene in mother and I didn't think mother was fantastic. I, at, at times no. I thought Albert Brooks is a bit much in the film, but I do, I forget the exact quote, but there's a, this whole conversation about this layer of like frozen crust on top of the ice cream that she had given a name like like don't yeah. like take off like the like the permafrost he's like you've given that that thing a name yeah. and i i just laugh whenever i see ice cream that's been in the freezer for just a little bit too long i go back to uh the movie mother um so yeah yeah, yeah but I-, I enjoyed i enjoyed uh the muse as well yeah i liked it i wish it had gone a little deeper on things but my favorite line in defending your life is actually two one is 
when Meryl Streep explains how she died, that she tripped over some lawn furniture, hit her head and rolled into the pool. And he was like, so what did the German judges give you? Mm -hmm. You know, which was a classic line. And then the other one where what I love is that she gets to live in a beautiful hotel with like <laughs> mints on her pillow because she has she's all about helping others. She's yep. all about living outside of her fears. Yep. And he's not. And and his place is kind of, you know, modest and everything. And he's like, so after we're done with dinner, why don't you come over and you can paint my place, you know, or something to that effect. He's like, I'm at the Continental. Uh, yeah, I'm at the Continental. We'll what a great name for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's great funny. line. Um, I thought about you while I was watching this movie and I just had to, because I knew that you were out in California, but now I was just, I don't know. I always enjoy a good LA gag. I've been out there a few times and... I've, I've I've enjoyed my time there, but I do love that uh, shitting on L.A. is just something that a lot of people enjoy doing. So, like, um, the line is like, is this heaven? Which was kind of like a little, like, field of dreams. He's like, no, it isn't heaven. He's like, is it hell? It's like, no, it isn't hell either. Actually, there is no hell. Although I hear L.A. is pretty close. Yeah. And, <laughs> which I just, again, I just, I, I thought, you know, it was just another, like, really great yeah. line. There are tons of really good uh, lines in this, obviously, I mean, Albert Brooks is, you know, he, his resume speaks for itself and, you know, his comedic timing is just fantastic. Where and are you, Andrew? And listening for 45 minutes and don't know who Albert Brooks is, uh, for the younger crowd, he was a voice of Marlon and finding Nemo, but, uh, just a, oh my God. uh, comedic actor, writer, as you mentioned, you know, uh, wrote for, SNL was uh, was in some SNL, I guess, like the early, early years, right? Maybe like the first season. He, he did a, a it was called a film by Albert Brooks. Mm -hmm. And that's what they would show as a little short film. Uh, and then actually either before him or right after him, it was a film by Gary Weiss. So the two of them had it. Where are you based, Andrew? I live in Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta. Oh, OK. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yep. Yep. I've been out here. I mean, I went to undergrad here. Uh, went to grad school up at uh, uh, in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon for playwriting, and but uh, my wife is from Atlanta originally, and I've kind of like traveled. So I lived in Atlanta, I've lived in Austin, grad school Pittsburgh, but I was born and raised on the island of Bermuda. And, oh wow! Uh, on my father's side, this is so weird, but I come from a long line of uh, Islanders, and my mother's American, and so her father was in the Navy. So she was a Navy brat, you know, her father got stationed in Bermuda. That's how they ended up, yada, yada. But um, so I traveled all over. But long story short, I live I live in Atlanta, but I, I've got friends that live in L.A. and uh, I enjoy going out there and everything. So, no, it, it's fun. Um, I mean, our weather, it's 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 like everybody else says you can't. Be, I mean, I live in Culver City. Oh, do you? So, okay. I mean, I'm 20 degrees cooler than the valley. Mm -hmm. You live in the valley. The valley's on fire, usually, literally <laughs> and figuratively. But it's it can be 20 degrees hotter. Um, I had to do some work there. It literally gave me a headache. I was just like, so I like being like right now, there's a beautiful breeze coming through my house. It's probably in the high 60s right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. What else do I want to talk about? I guess, I mean, if we're talking about this movie and, you know, we'll 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 transition into maybe like the final act of of our conversation, try to keep these around an hour. So not too long. Sure. Time is precious, but we don't have to go down a rabbit hole, but I mean, this movie, obviously by dealing with dealing with death and, and spirituality, do you yourself consider yourself religious or spiritual or what are your thoughts? If you, if, if you want to have this conversation about, yeah. you know, uh, what happens after, after we pass, is there, you know, it, in your own in your own thoughts, you know, if you sure. want to you want to have this type of conversation, but this is the type of movie that encourages that type of conversation. So I, I feel it's relevant. I wouldn't know. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I've had my own opinions on this for a long time, and um, I've I've studied everything from, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh to Deepak Chopra to Bruce Lipton, excuse me, to Michael Beckwith. Um, Neil Donald Walsh, these are all spiritualists, Marion Williamson. Um, and what I have, I have had more and what I call them are God shots. I'm not a religious person. I'm totally very spiritual. 
Um, I don't believe it's an old white guy in the sky. What a horrible thought, you know, um, <laughs> just really awful. You know, what is it? A very, very specific list of things that he's not OK uh, with. And I like this person and I don't like that person. No, it's yeah. not that way. I believe very similar to what defending your life is and with a little bit of a twist. I believe that we we choose to be here and to have the experiences that we have, that we choose them before we come here and that this is the vessel that we're in to express you can call it god source the presence um energy of the universe that we're here to express through this body and learn about ourselves learn about um what it's like to live on this planet as a human being um when I break it down, it's about more self-awareness and being of service to others. And and I think we just continue to learn if we choose to. I believe that there's this energy that runs through everything because that's the way nature works. You know, um, I met a mystic from Ghana who believed that the pecking order of consciousness goes trees, animals, humans. Because trees give out unconditional love. They give out oxygen for everything else to breathe. They don't bitch about it. They don't talk to their friends about it. They're not, you know, it, it's that's they're just being. And then animals understand the cycle of nature. And and they tap into that. And it, like I heard recently that when a dog is walking around the backyard looking where it's going to pee. It's looking for a gravitational energy level. It's looking for a piece of energy where it knows where to pee. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea, but I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then humans at the third are constantly trying to overtake the other two. Yeah. You know, the book I wrote, Uncle Bill's Animal Tales, Life Lessons for Adults. One of the points I make is, why do we think we own this planet? Human beings are so self-righteous, so arrogant. This is my planet, you know. No, it's not. We share it with all of these other living creatures. And if we would only approach it the way indigenous tribes do and honor it all, then we would be in that cycle of life. But we're not. Our egos get caught up in no, I was talking to what, my goddaughter is in India right now. And she called me and said, and she's like free of anxiety, free of all these things. And I'm like, wow, what what's going on? She goes, everyone is just so kind. And there's a religion called Jains. Um, I'd never heard of it. And Jains don't believe that we are to be completely nonviolent. Like they won't even step on a bug. Okay. It's all about just honoring life honoring life and they don't care if somebody's gay bisexual straight whatever doesn't matter to them it's more about not being violent not killing and that's what they believe um so myself and as i've gotten older and i've experienced a lot and i've had people die and then show up in my room later and that happened to my mom and my dad and my sister there's something greater than me out there. Mm -hmm. And it's like the Unitarians say, if you believe that life is a mystery, then you're spiritual. So I don't need to know all the answers, but my, my gut tells me that when this body dies, my energy continues on, whether it's mm -hmm. consciousness or, I mean, we're made up of energy. So I believe it, it, it lives on, whether it's in another human or some other type of level, like in defending your life. Right. You move on in the universe. I had a, a psychic tarot reader in Sedona, which is a spiritual vortex. And when I, and people told me that, and I went there and everybody was crying. I'm like, Jesus, this is kind of crazy. And this guy turns out he knew my partner or my ex-partner at the time. I'm in Sedona. And he actually knew this woman and my ex was going to be on her podcast that week out of the blue. And he read my palm and he looks at it and he goes, you're not coming back. And I went, what are you talking about? He goes, you're going to ascend. 
you're not coming back. And he goes, and I rarely ever tell that to anyone. And my parents had died within four months of each other in 2010. My dad died um, at 89 and, and my mom at 85. She was killed in a car accident four months after he died. And they'd been married for 64 years and been together for like 70. And he said, your parents are traveling together. And he goes, usually when couples ascend or they pass, they cross over, they separate and they continue their journey. But he was so matter of fact, and he had no idea my background. And he shared with me that he had just turned four years clean and sober. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, God shot. <laughs> the God shot. Yeah. That's that's really, really fascinating, Bill. Um, you also. I, I, I tried to like things that people say, try to latch onto just one thing, just from each thing without uh, just turning it into a different conversation. But when we were talking about you know, the, the little hierarchy of like trees, animals, animals humans, humans, right. And you we talked about the fact that, you know, we are kind of like self-centered, we're arrogant. I mean, when you look at it, right, like earth itself is over four and a half billion years old, right. Or four and a half billion years. Like humans have been, been on this earth for even like 1% of like the time of like of of earth and this whole notion that we own this planet we like this planet b barely even knows that we exist really when you look at from like the, the grand scheme of things right and so there is this kind of you know check your own ego and your own humanity as far as you know like why we're here you know this we're we're lucky enough that we do have this oxygen you know this this energy that we that we that we have that we share in you know um in in our space it's it's precious and i'm not trying to go like on a like a different you know philosophical discussion but just to offer you know just a, a further uh conversation to what you had just mentioned before is is just that and this idea of you know our the, the time that we do have because even if humans haven't been here for like i said one percent of earth's existence we're our own lives are just even a fraction of even that and so the, the the time that we do have, yeah, it's it, it's important to not necessarily you don't have to be Meryl Streep in this film, although that is something very, very uh, um, something that there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be uh, be like her character, which is like there. What was that that scene uh, where she was just went in uh, like the like the burning house and just kept on coming back. Right. Just kept on grabbing more she things went in to save the cat. Yeah, yeah, it saved the cat. Yeah, she exactly. Went back in to save the cat. Yep. And <laughs> what was it like? It was the kind of the the prosecuting attorney wanted to watch the video again, like just like just want like everybody just wanted like hey, sorry, I just wanted to see the I just wanted to see that again. Yeah. And, uh, so <laughs> just to kind of like tie it back to the film, it was just so good. It just uh, this movie has, you know, what actually brings up another question that I have for you, and this will be the the last question I have. If no, I, I think I've got one more after that. But if you did, if you if this if this scenario was how it was that, you know, we we do have a judgment city and you have to defend your life, if you will. Or maybe it's not you don't have to. Uh, how about let me actually let me simplify it. I just went all over. But the question I have for you is if you had to sit in a courtroom and watch a moment from your life, like just a moment, like a day. Is there a day that you would maybe want to go back and revisit? Maybe it was a day in school or a holiday trip or the, 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 you know, the, the day that you met your partner, you know, what, what, is there something that you would love to go back and revisit? You couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't obviously change anything, but just to like, you're turning on a TV and you're just watching a moment from your own life. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it, that's a tough question to just pick one thing out. I think just from a general standpoint, um, it, it, I've, I've stopped doing some things because the fear did get the best of me um, at times. Or I would have to say there's several times when I was drinking and drugging that if I could go back, that I would have made a different choice whether it was taking care of my partner dying of AIDS to a relationship before that, um, 
you know, people I slept with, whatever it might be, um, it, it, it would be, it would be, it wouldn't be one. I, I can't think of one. I really can't because there's so many that I made poor choices when I was drinking and drugging compared to being sober, where I'm proud of 99.9% .9 of the choices I make. So I would have to say that, but I think any time that I gave, that I made a decision out of fear and not out of love would be the time that I would want to go back and change it. Because I believe we we make choices out of out of two feelings, either love or fear. Mm -hmm. And if yeah. I'm making a choice out of fear, it's the wrong decision. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, switching gears, although this could also be a very, very tough question, but if you could have one meal that you could eat forever, like just all you could eat without ever gaining any weight and it wouldn't affect you physically, emotionally, or otherwise. Like in the movie, they Meryl Streep eats that giant uh, bowl of like plate of plot pasta and he gets uh, like the the ultimate like shrimp dinner, right? What would be your, you can eat as much of it as you want to be the greatest thing ever and it won't have any adverse reaction. I'm going to cheat a little. I'm going to say a clam bake because in a clam bake, you have numerous foods, but it's <laughs> the same thing um, of clams, lobster, probably. Lo well, lobster, eating too much of it can be really bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, seafood in general is my favorite. I'm from Boston. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had clam bakes and in the and we would sometimes dig large holes in the ground and put in a layer of seaweed and you know un, uh, first put in the coals then the seaweed then a layer of corn on the cob and then a layer of squash and then a layer of um clams and then lobsters and you literally you cooked it all in the ground um so i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat and say a clam bake there's no wrong answer. I'm just kind of curious, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I asked you that question. I hadn't thought about it for myself, but I imagine it's something Italian. I <laughs> I just love Italian. And I think maybe I'm also kind of cheating because watching the movie, the giant bowl of pasta, it sounds like a great idea. And I do love pasta, but I don't really eat pasta because of the fact that it's so carb heavy, but, um, very, but yeah, you know, I'm, really anything Italian or even like Amer like Italian American, like chicken parm isn't really Italian. It's actually, it's not Italian, but I do love myself some chicken Parmesan. Probably eat a ton of that uh, growing up on the Island. So fish, I've never really, I've never been a, a shellfish fan, but I do love like fish fish. Yeah. Whether it's all of it. Yeah. 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 Uh, Bill, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed, like I said, try to keep this around an hour. Uh, yeah, thank is there, you. is there any, is there anything else that you want to close on with the film? Like any, anything that you go back to, maybe you wanted to talk about something that we didn't discuss or I don't know, uh, if there's anything that you wanted to cover and then obviously we'll, we'll, we'll transition into how listeners can learn more about you, but sure. is there anything that we're overlooking? I think the one thing I want to say is, you know, in writing a book and, and you know, and, and making a film and, and writing other screenplays and putting up shows and things like that, anyone who thinks they can't do it should just slap themselves in the face because you can do anything that you set your mind to. And I tell everyone, everyone's got a book in them. Everyone has a book in them. So if, you know, if you're not sure how to start, write a short story, start writing short stories, either about your life or about the story that you want to tell. Um, and then just remember, there's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting, but get a draft done and then you can go back and rework it again. But you got to sit down and put pen to paper. You know, it's key. And there's something inside of you that wants to get out. And that's how you get it out by putting it on paper. So I'll end on that. Bill, that's a great way to close. Great way to close. Where can people find your work? Where can they find my work? Oh, Lord. Uh, Amazon is where my book is. 
Uncle Bill's Animal Tales, Life Lessons for Adults, buy a bunch. Uh, it's actually doing quite well. I'm telling everyone to make a great Christmas gift um, <laughs> or birthday gift. And it's a fun read. It's about 110 pages right in there. It's a good read. There's some fun photos in it. Um, I've I've gotten really good reviews on it so far. Um, so that's good. And then um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But the film um, right now, it's it's it ha doesn't have a release date yet. But when you see Paradise and they might just call it Paradise, the, the formal is Paradise, a town of sinners and saints. But I've seen some of the advertising from the distributor that was for the buyers. And they he the artwork said Paradise lights, camera, damnation. Because <laughs> it has a twist to it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so that and then, you know, my second book should be out. Um, I'm going to say by the middle of September. OK, so and that one's about me getting getting sober and I make them all um, humorous and heartfelt. So the book, the books are going to come out that way. So it's an it, it's a fun read. It's inspiring. And it might help people. And that's why I did it. Excellent. Bill Robertson, thank you. Thank you so much. You have a great evening. Again, thank you. Thank you so much to uh, to Bill for hopping on the show. I really do appreciate his time. Hopefully this was every bit as fun for you. Maybe you learned something about the movie. Maybe you learned a little something about, about Hollywood. Maybe you learned a little something about, well, Bill, obviously. But either way. If you are new to the channel, thank you very much for, for getting this far. Please do me a favor and subscribe to the website. You can get updates anytime an episode publishes. Of course, on the website, I have a whole like, blog uh, tab as well. So I, I'm going to be getting better at updating that and having uh, fresh uh, stories. There's a new one right out now. So have a, have a read at that if you haven't. And also feel free to leave a review. Reviews are awesome. Rate the show. And if you are a long-term listener, thank you. Thank you for your support. You too should be leaving reviews. I really do appreciate them. And uh, obviously rating the podcast as well. But I'm going to leave you there for today. Again, thank you for, for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Stanford Cinema.